2: It is another weekend, well it's not even, it's the international break now, so technically we're in for two weeks of misery, but we did have a weekend of joy to precede that, and with me to discuss such a weekend of joy, uh, two gentlemen that spent their Sunday afternoon in West London at Fulham Arsenal, Jack McBrook to my left. Tired, how are you? uh, I'm fine, thank you, thank you for asking. And to my right, a debutant on the podcast, Tom Kershaw, how are you sir?
1: Oh good, good to be here.
2: Well, well, um... Do you want to discuss Fulham-Arsenal first, because you were both there, or do you want to go for the big one of the weekend, Liverpool-Manchester City? Let's ease ourselves in with Fulham-Arsenal. Okay, well, allow us to ease ourselves in with Arsenal's fairly thorough dismantling of Slavica Jokanovic's Fulham. Um, I think I saw a lot of Arsenal fans yesterday asking, um, are we actually good? Um, So I'll, I'll start with that, I think,
3: Jake. Are Arsenal actually good? They're getting there. Uh, They're not there yet. I didn't think they were very good in the first half. Um, I thought they looked tired, which is understandable given that they got back from Carabag at 5 o'clock in the morning on Friday. And they were playing a very similar team to the team that played that day. Uh, I thought that they didn't really create much. They were hassled off the ball quite well by Fulham in that first half. And actually Fulham had three or four good chances in the first half before Andre Schürrle's goal just before the break. So I wasn't that like going into half time I thought Fulham were going to have the better of the second half because you know they had the crowd up after their equalizer and everything. Then of course Arsenal took the game away from them in the second half initially with the quality of Lacazette's goal and the Ramsey goal and then they were helped out by the fact that Fulham completely collapsed in the second half and I think I think we should get into that later because that I think will be a worrying theme for the rest of their season. Um but no, I thought, uh, while Arsenal did play better in the second half, I don't think they are, I mean, they are not there yet.
1: Tom? Uh, I think you could look back on this moment as, like, the changeover from the Wenger team. In the first in the first half, we saw the Wenger team of old, where they were leaky at the back. They were sort of unclinical in the final third, and you thought, well, yeah, as you said, you know, Fulham had three chances, mostly gifted to them, where they could have really taken the game away, and perhaps a better side would have done. But then in the second half, they came out, I mean, probably with a rollicking at halftime. But they came out and they looked like a transformed team in the new formation. And, you know, even with Lacazette and Aubameyang interchanging, you know, e- either way... They were by far the dominant side and there was a ruthlessness about in-possession and especially in the pressing game, which was sort of, they attempted to do in the first half but they weren't really executing well, whereas we saw, you know, even with someone like Xhaka, who can sometimes be guilty of being lazy, was charging around. Awobi had probably the best game of his Arsenal career Uh, and Lacazette seems to be firing in a way that he never was under Wenger.
2: But should we be getting carried away? Fulham have got the worst defence in the league, I believe they conceded 21 goals so far this season, um, which is, is is way too many. You know, they've always been a, a great footballing team, uh, and, and yeah, you know, I, I kind of felt that they were the perfect matchup for the traditional Arsenal. In, in that, if you tried to play Arsenal at their own game, traditionally under Wenger, then Arsenal would beat you. You know, It's if you tried to rough them up and stuff. You know, I like kind of. I mean, maybe Cardiff's a bad example because Cardiff just looked to be way below the level required for this league at the moment, but you're looking at someone like Cardiff and they're probably going to cause more problems to Arsenal, like maybe a Rafa Benitez Newcastle will cause more problems to Arsenal than a team like Fulham, who, who we've seen a lot of Jack over the last year, and, and they do play great stuff, and I think we even saw that for periods on Sunday. It's just that they
3: perhaps, you know, are too easily sliced. Yeah, I think... I'm kind of worried about Fulham. I think that they, I don't think they care enough about being hard to beat. I think they think, I think they're trying to run before they can walk. They've bought all these good, good attacking players, and clearly they want to play good attacking football. And they don't just want to be about staying up; they want to really push up into the, you know, into into the middle of the table and beyond. But you have to be hard to beat before you can do anything else. And they're not; they're incredibly easy to beat and to play against. And the fact that after certainly after the sec after the third goal Arsenal scored yesterday Fulham completely gave up like you kind of used the word surrendered in his post match press conference and there was no resistance at all for the fourth and fifth goals like if the game had gone on another ten minutes Arsenal could have scored another three or four and, and that's, that you you do, you do you do not want to see that in a team which is going to be fighting to stay up like you have to be you have to be difficult to beat before you can do anything else they did invest in their defense um kind of over
2: the summer they signed Maxime Le Marchand from, from Nice yep. um, they also signed Alfie Mawson who was on the bench uh, and I imagine they brought in Callum Chambers as well yeah on loan they brought in Callum Chambers yeah. on loan um, Tim Ream's still there yeah, I kind of thought that they would be alright actually in terms of you know, they, they spent a decent amount of money on defenders. It's
3: just that, I guess, they're not getting protection from the guys in front who are all a bit more attacking-minded. Yeah, they had Anguissa and Seri. In, well, they played, they played a 3-4-3 three, three with Anguissa and Seri in midfield in front of the back three, and they were too easy to to get through. I didn't think the back three were very good. Reem was turned easily for Lacazette's first goal. Uh, Le Marchand was turned easily for Aubameyang's first goal. Um I just don't think kind of is a very defensive minded coach. Like that was evident in his time at Watford. Yeah, I just I, I just think he's not who he is. Yeah, right, exactly. And that and he kinda of, in a sense he fits into the, the kind of Fulham brand of like attacking, sighting football. But I just think that it's he that's gonna come back to bite them because you have to you have to be able to keep clean sheets. He's a bit of an ideologue. Um they did give up chances last year Fulham and basically
2: in the championship you get away with that a lot more. You know, that's it's a bit of a cliche, but it is true that kind of the, the sort of chances that you get away with in the championship, you don't get away with in the Premier League when you're up against strikers like Aubameyang and Lacazette, who both cost, what, north of £50 million. Pounds. Um, any other thoughts on, on Unai Emery's kind of uh, developing Arsenal side, Tom? Uh,
1: well, I think that now there's a lot more the most notable thing is the cohesion between the players. There's much more of a team spirit. I mean, I remember the story towards the end of last season was Aubameyang and Lacazette competing, both sort of trying to work their way into that sole position. I mean, now you've got Aubameyang on the bench and, you know, Lacazette went to celebrate the goal with him. They seem to have a very... Sort of, they seem to have a blossoming friendship that would be uncommon for two people sort of, you know, going at it for r- what really should be only one role since they have quite... Aubameyang doesn't really offer the defensive style that Emery wants. So in the way that he's managed to get Ozil out of the team which in this new formation is essential for him and you've got to say that introducing someone like Welbeck, he's mad, he's turned Welbeck from someone who was, I mean last season, didn't really offer much at all.
2: Feels like a spare part Yeah and
1: he, he was actually one of the most crucial players on the pitch because he has such an energy up front that he allows some of the other players to take more of a backseat role whilst he does some of the harder work. It'll
3: be interesting to see if he sticks with the four four two going forward because I think that w- it would be great to see Abameyang and Lacazette start together in that formation. And also, because as Tom says, I don't really see how Ozil can play. Like, they had Mkhitaryan yeah. was playing on the right wing yesterday. But he does quite a lot more work than Ozil does. Like, I don't, I'm don't, i not sure has ever played in a four four two 2 in his life. Like, I think if he did, he would mm. have to play as a kind of old-fashioned second striker, wouldn't he? Yeah, be? yeah, like the Teddy Sheringham role. Exactly, exactly, that kind of 90s position. Yeah. But I don't see how... That's kind of what Zaha's playing this season. Yeah, I don't see how, how else he could fit into that. But, I mean, I... I've, I've wondered a lot this season whether Ozil would be in Emery's ideal team going forward although of course Emery's hands are slightly tied by the fact that Arsenal gave Ozil a colossal new contract only a few months ago.
2: Yeah so the Ozil situation is for me one of the most interesting things around Arsenal because you know like they're they're kind of they're doing well and I know um, there are some, some guys I follow who are kind of deep in the analytics stuff and they maintain that the underlying numbers around Arsenal aren't that good, so some regression is due. So we might see them kind of fall back to earth a bit after the international break, and that might not necessarily be them getting worse. That might be just kind of the real Arsenal. So we'll we'll see what to see about that. However, the Ersal thing interests me because as as the team is perceived to be doing well, was it nine wins in a row now? Yeah, nine wins in a row, and he's basically not a part of it. You know, he's not played an important part. In, in any of those wins really kind of one or two at the start I guess he he was, he was started the games and, and obviously he was involved but what do we think of, of the situation with Mesut Ozil now are Arsenal in a situation where if Emery is going to be in charge for two, three, four, five years for example they need to just sell him while he's still got value or is it just a player that's got too much quality to let out the door at a time when they're not really shopping or off the top shelf
3: anymore it's it's interesting because i think it will reveal a lot about who actually makes the decisions at arsenal because i'm sure that i mean let's say emery decides he doesn't want he doesn't want ozil around ozil doesn't fit into his style of play if he then said that to the board to um Venkat and raul Senlehi and the new guys running the club would they would they sell him? Would they or would they say, well, he's so important to us commercially because of his because mm. uh, he's so famous around the world and he, he brings in so much money to the club. He's such a kind of ambassador for the brand. We don't want him to go. So because it, it, a lot of people say, and I think correctly, that Emery is basically just a Emery's got a very, very diminished role at the club certainly compared to Wenger, but even compared to managers at other teams, a, he doesn't even do... A coach, th- coach Right, he doesn't even buy the players. Like, Mislintat buys the players. Everyone, yeah. We all know this. Um, so it will be revealing to see if he did want to get rid of Urza whether or not he would get his way. He is at least a commodity, like an asset,
2: who has a decent value to him. If Ozil if and, and Ramsey weren't there at the start of next season, I think that would really feel like a completely new Arsenal team. Because those guys, for different reasons, have kind of defined the last five to six years of, of the Wenger reign. Um... Ramsey with a perceived kind of failure to ever get to where people thought he might end up. And, and Ozil, because he was supposed to be, you know, he was the first time that Arsenal had really splashed out on a player. yeah, And he was supposed to take them to new heights at a time when they actually ended up going the opposite direction.
3: But we will see. But interestingly enough, Ramsey, I think the presence of urzil has been one of the great issues with Ramsey over the last few years. Because Ramsey obviously wants to play as a kind of, not quite as a number 10, but as a sort of goal-scoring number eight who arrives in the the box late. But you can't really do that in the same way if you've always got Ozil kind of getting in the way. And at a team who didn't have an Ozil, uh, as in a team who didn't play with a, a a classical number 10 like that, I think there would be a lot more room for Ramsey to get in the box and score goals. And so it would be funny if if Ramsey were to leave at the end of the season, and then Ozil were to leave as well, then all of a sudden Ramsey might think, well, you know, if I if I stuck around, then maybe they would be a position for me. Are we still expecting? We're still expecting Ramsey at the moment to go. Yeah, I think he'll go. Either in... it depends whether there's, there's buyers in January. I think Arsenal would. I mean, he, will, he certainly won't be there next year, uh, and that's been that's been on the cards for a long time. I know that it's, it's been written recently that you know Arsenal have pulled the plug on talks, so that's not really my understanding of it. I think that Ramsey for at least a year or two, has decided that this is going to be his last Arsenal contract. He's done a lot there, but he wants to go elsewhere. Uh, he's never been particularly interested in renegotiating a new one on the, because he knows that Arsenal aren't going to offer him the money players he'd get elsewhere. Get, players
2: are getting increasingly smart, I think, about this. You know People compare it to NBA free agency and stuff. Um, not, I, I don't know loads about basketball, but the amount of players that do tend to hit free agency there is kind of changing yeah. uh, the game. And, and footballers realise the the max value you can get for your services is in free agency. Yeah. Um so with two as soon as you pass the two year mark left on your contract, you know, you can basically either force a sale or you can uh, where you're going to get roughly probably 90% of what you get in free agency or you can try and get all the way uh, to proper free agency which I I think there could be a chance that we're going to see more of these top players getting towards the end of their contracts and and that's
3: why Arsenal should sell Ramsey. Um, if he's not going to sign that's a new what, deal. That's what Wenger always said, actually, during the, the Sanchez stuff last year. He said that he thinks that because... He thinks that basically more and more players will try and do that, will try and see, run their contracts down. Um, Ram, where Ramsey ends up, uh, Chelsea have always been interested, Liverpool, Manchester United. Can't really see him going to Tottenham, and he'd be he too feel, expensive for Tottenham. It feels
2: like a player who's going to stay in the Premier
3: League. I can't, I can't imagine a team from outside Well, you and Barcelona have been interested in the past, but I don't know whether whether they would be again this time.
1: And there was rumours of Gazidis wanting to take him to Milan.
3: Yeah, I just... uh, The thing uh, that...
2: He just seems like such an obvious Premier League player. For me, I can't see him fitting into
3: Italian football. I think he's a bit too... I don't know, he's a bit... He's, I kind of see him as more of a dynamic player.
1: Mm. I also think, from an Arsenal perspective, now that they've got Torreira, who's sort of everything that... Yeah. You know, he's so vital in the anchor of midfield that he can allow them the luxury of only having two players playing in the midfield, whereas before they needed to have a Ramsey, and a Ananosa to exactly, ha- reinforce yeah. that three, whereas now you sort of saw that Emery feels confident enough they had one, to only have two sort of more box-to-box players in midfield. And Terreira like, is so influential.
3: Yeah, it'd be good to see maybe if they do, do stick with the four four two like Terreira and a more box-to-box player in their long term, and then it, uh, Mikatari and Iwobi, I don't know some other combination of players which will allow them to play the, the two up front
1: and Gwen Doozy's really blossoming I think we saw that when he came on how he had the confidence I mean he's played more games at Arsenal than he had in his whole sort of senior career and he's just he's come into the team so quickly he almost his balls sort of reminded you of an Alex Song the way that he was picking balls over the top which although he'll hope to be much more than that was probably the best part of his play and he had that amazing connection with Van Persie which could be very prosperous well, that's
2: what I thought when I saw Guendouzi's balls um, I, I, I also kind of think that this January might be quite a big transfer window across the Premier League and stuff and what I'm hearing because I think a lot of teams were unsatisfied with their own summer business yeah. and every indication I've had from talking to people around that sort of stuff suggests that this January there are going to be teams making big signings which kind of last year and the year before it kind of Disappeared a little bit, didn't it? The January stuff. It's like teams have planned for. This is who we buy in the se- in the season, and then like if we make a deal in January, it's because we've had a major injury or something. This year, I think teams are planning for big January impact signings.
3: Yeah, I completely agree, and I think you're right that lots of teams kind of got caught by the wayside by how short the August window was, which is ridiculous. And there's lots of the deals way. which you'd think, well, for example, like Chelsea and the striker. Everybody knows that Chelsea need a good striker. And it, that was obvious from the first game. And like under the good in the good old days, Chelsea would have had the first games and thought, "Oh Christ, we need a striker. These guys are rubbish," and they would have got one on deadline yeah, day. Yeah. But they obviously weren't able to do that. So I'm sure they will go back in January on that basis. United look short in lots of positions. Tottenham obviously need players. Arsenal probably need players. Centre you know, back, especially. Yeah, only probably. Liverpool and City. You'd see. You'd say of the of the good teams don't really need need extra additions.
2: Yeah. So I I do think. That's going to make it uh, far more interesting in January than we've had in many a year, which is you know, frankly good news for everyone because it's always interesting when to see who's who's rolling the dice on on survival or top four or the title and you know if Liverpool or city went out and made the big signing in January, it's kind of saying like we're here to win this stuff, and then we should talk about Liverpool and City I guess
1: um
0: Plushcare.com/slash/weight-loss.
2: It was, a, uh, I guess, one of those games that we have to refer to as tactically intriguing when it's nil-nil. Um, the game was played; it started off certainly at a tremendous speed, and I really thought this could be, could be great. You know, we could have like four-three or something like that here, but it, it never really got going. I think I was actually quite impressed. I think Pep Guardiola gets a lot of. Uh, credit for his attacking work but I think that the way he set City out defensively the way that they occupied Liverpool's favoured passing channels to stop them you know Liverpool do when you watch Liverpool play at at their best you it's recognisably Liverpool because of the way they play because a lot of it's quite similar pattern play to what you're used to seeing with them and I think City put their players in positions where they could stop those same old passes going through, and it really caused a lot of problems for Klopp. And then, with kind of, all the, the preamble is always all oh, Klopp's inside uh, Guardiola's head. I think that was the headline of your piece, Jack. But actually, I thought Guardiola kind of struck back in an impressive way. And when Aguero went off, uh, when was that? 60, 70 minutes, and he kind of trudged off slowly. I thought, okay, so that assumes that City are happy with a point at Anfield and probably f- fancy themselves to beat Liverpool. at The Etihad. Um, so, what did you think of that from a, from a Manchester City perspective, Jack?
3: Yeah, I th- I think that um, Pep proved me wrong. Um, obviously, I <laughs> you doubted Pep. Yeah, well, obviously, sorry, I, I wrote a piece which went online on Friday morning saying that Guardiola got it wrong at Anfield in April by going too defensive, basically, and uh, like compromising his normal message, and in doing so, confusing the players, and that's why they were bat they got battered and, and lost three 0 Whereas I, the implication of which is that he should Pep should go on the attack all the time uh, because it's being true to himself. Whereas in reality, I think he actually found the balance exactly right yesterday in the way that City did have to do a lot of defending the first twenty minutes. I can't remember ever seeing City that deep for that long. They could, could barely get out. They could they couldn't even get a foot on the ball. And that's very uncommon. Do you think they were to be deep though? I think they were. Ha- I think they, they were relaxed about getting pushed deep. They like sucking if, teams in yeah i think they were like it's not what they would choose but knowing how liverpool play, they would rather go deep and defend that way than go too high up the pitch and allow liverpool to get in um so i thought they did that and they handled that much better than they have done in the past and then you know as the spaces emerged they started to attack i didn't i didn't think it was city at their best but then it hasn't been city at their best this season they didn't have De Bruyne, obviously um And, you know, if Mahrez had scored that penalty at the end, then everybody would have said it was a tactical masterclass from from Guardiola, the way that he took the sting out of the game and then nicked one on the break at the end. Mourinho-esque. Right, yeah. So people would have been incredibly positive. And while I don't think... Why was Mara's taking the penalty? Well, the thing is, it's very easy to be critical of Maras, not least because of those pictures of him. He took him at Leicester, I guess. Like, taking it off... Uh, got, did Vardy take them to Leicester? I think Vardy took them to Leicester, because of the way he took it off Jesus. But the fact is, City didn't have a recognised penalty take on the pitch, because they didn't have Aguero or De Bruyne. Um, and, you know, it's, someone's got to take it, and yeah. fair, it was Guardiola, Guardiola confirmed after the game that he chose for Morris to take okay. it. fair enough. Because
1: um, he apologised to Jesus, didn't he? Yeah. And it's not like we Jesus', Jesus. And it's not like
3: <laughs> record is immaculate either on pens, so... I yeah, I mean, I think it, it's one of those things where if you're if you're really angry with Maris missing the pen, then you're a dick. Like it ha- yeah. people miss pens. Well, you know, it's just I guess a frustration because
2: it would have been an enormous blow to Liverpool and a, and a huge boost for City. Kind of,
3: I think it's better for the title race that he missed it retrospectively. Um, but, but I think that, like, from a, certainly from a City perspective, although there is like some frustration at. Failing to, failing to win the game. The fact is there's 30 games left this season and the evidence yesterday is that City are going to pick up more points than Liverpool. Good uh, piece from Johnny Lou about uh, the game on the website, uh, which you should check out as um,
2: as always, I guess. Independent.co.uk slash sport or slash football. Um, you might have noticed we've had a little redesign. Uh, usually it just means uh, embarrassing pictures of us kind of stuck in the middle at the top there, but uh, there's some good stuff as well. There's also a subscription service, uh, Independent Minds, which is uh, a free trial, so you can you kind of check that out and see if you do like that. Uh, Liverpool, Tom, um, one of the things I noticed was that I think Klopp has a measure of Guardiola's personality probably better than some of the other coaches around. And when Liverpool were pressing high, as we mentioned with, with Jack, kind of where got the front three kind of pushing back and it's the goalkeeper passing it to a couple of defenders who are almost in his own box yeah and and you see that Klopp (coughs) knows essentially that if they do the high press there are two ways to break it you can either break it with a long direct pass yeah which Guardiola is rarely going to do or you can break the press by just playing around it really well and he knows that Guardiola's ideological devotion to football to good football Means that Guardiola's players are always going to try and triangle basically their way out of these situations where it's going to be like dinking it around and they'll wait for the mistake. The mistake didn't really come this week, but
1: what do you think of Liverpool, basically, general performance and the game plan on Sunday? I think that Man City will actually be disappointed that they didn't win the game regardless of the penalty because I think it was the perfect chance. Liv- I mean, Liverpool were very lackluster against Napoli. And obviously, you know everyone's focusing on Salah, but up up top, that sort of fruitful trio that was so effective. I mean, it, it's not it's you, it's almost unrecognisable to when they were at their top form last season. So you've got to think, you know, they're all of them are underperforming, and it was the perfect chance to take to take it to them because, I mean, in in the midfield, you know, James Milner is playing well as ever, but you feel like there's something missing there for Liverpool that perhaps they haven't built on what they had last season whereas you think with Man City you know they're going to get better Gary Neville kind of made a repeated point on the on the
2: commentary the co-commentary about Liverpool be, looking tired and being tired um, was it was it Miguel on this very podcast who, who was saying that whenever they've had a whenever Dortmund won the Champions League or whenever uh, Dortmund won the that champ- was me that was you no, uh, I, don't I misattribute have that nugget <laughs> of gold <laughs> that, that, it, it was a good nugget um, whenever Dortmund won the league they were bombed out the Champions League and vice versa. When they did well in the Champions League, they were out of the title race. Liverpool last year, out of the title race completely by, like what, December? Yeah. But the Champions League, obviously they went really far. So it's yet to be seen, I guess, whether they can fight on two fronts because... You know, And one of the defining things about watching this game was that front three put in a lot of work. I know yeah. like Salah didn't really
3: produce anything attacking-wise, but those front three players did really well to put pressure on the City back four. Neville was really critical of the fact that those three had all played at Napoli away, wasn't he? He was, in yeah. In midweek, and he said that what Klopp should have done is played you know, Sturridge and Shaqiri and those mm. guys at Napoli, even though it means you're probably going to lose... To So that Liverpool will be at 100% for City. And of course, the fact that Liverpool went to Napoli with their best team and lost and then played City and l- luckily scraped a draw yeah. suggests that Klopp's tried to kind of put his eggs in too many different baskets and it's all gone wrong. My view is that I, I think no, that's the wrong way around. He's put his. No. Because putting your eggs. He's trying to spread himself too thinly, so I got my metaphors confused.
2: Yeah, yeah yes. But, but also, I think if it wasn't an international break afterwards, I don't think he would have done it. But right, you're kind of yeah, looking yeah. at it, as it's, like, it's two games in four days. They're big games because, you know, there's that, a tough Champions League group they've got as well, PSG mm, in there, tough. lost in Naples now, so they are up against it for continental qualification, which is a big part of kind of the, the progress of this this Klopp project. I know people hate that word really, but it's a good description of what it is. Um, so you're looking at those two games in, in three, four days, and you're saying, okay, well, if we can get 180 minutes out of the best team we have, We've got the best chance of getting these results. And then they've got two weeks off, from, from Klopp's point of view. Obviously, they actually have international football to play, but from Klopp's point of view, not my problem sort of thing. Um, it is just something, I guess, we'll watch throughout the season, the, the conditioning um, of these Liverpool players, because what they have done is they bought really good players for the first team, and they've done it, as, as we've said many times, forensically and, and very effectively. We need a defender. Let's go and get Virgil van Dijk, who might be one of the best centre-backs in the world right now in fact probably he is one of the best center backs in the world right now. We need a, a midfielder with some drive and stuff that's going to get Naby Keita. However, they haven't got the depth necessarily of some of these other teams. And I'm particularly looking at, at City. I think United probably have a deeper squad than than Liverpool. They don't have a, I don't think their first 11 is is as good and obviously they're not coached as well, but I think their their squad could be deeper. Anything else to say on Liverpool City which
1: fundamentally was a disappointing game? No. No. Uh, I just think Naby Keita, I you know, it's obviously hard to juggle Henderson because, you know, he's the club captain. But I think that Nabi Kater offers so much more to Liverpool's he's midfield. Player, he? He's such a great player, you know, he's great in the Bundesliga. And you could, the, you know, the way that he settled in in his first game for Liverpool showed what a player he is. And, you know, normally you afford a sort of months of adjusting. He settled right in straight away. And he has that matching dynam- dynamism to, this, to the front three. I mean, he's energetic. He can player through ball as readily as he can charge back and make a sort of rough slide tackle that you need and I think that when you've got Henderson and Milner uh, together in the midfield you you know you've got two very good players but not necessarily the player who can charge forwards and back relentlessly throughout the game and they need that to match the front three. They've also got Fabinho who we haven't seen a load of yet
2: but I think might become more useful as the season goes on and that is good depth to have because you know they haven't played him. It's just very curious why he hasn't been playing. I think I think Klopp's struggling to just get them in for game time. You know, uh, he could uh, he could probably have wedged him in on on the right or or at right back where he's also played in the past. But I get the impression that they know it's a long season and, and maybe he's going to just come into his own a bit more as injuries occur and, and as they do have to rotate. Um, Saturday's results. Uh, I don't know if anyone's particularly interested in in most of those incredible win for Bournemouth at Watford four 0 but the big game was. was at Old Trafford, um, where Manchester United, uh, quite amazingly, uh, were 2-0 down inside 10 minutes against Newcastle. And in the context of the Daily Mirror back page, which came out on Friday night saying that Jose Mourinho will be sacked this weekend, regardless of the result against Newcastle, Saturday morning comes, it's denied by the club, they're 2-0 down after 10 minutes, and then everyone's kind of looking at Jose Mourinho and wondering what the hell's going to happen here. Uh, we're not even wondering that much, to be honest. Come back, on seventy, Martial seventy six, and then Sanchez in stoppage time, Jack. Um was quite a quite a day for Jose Mourinho.
3: Yeah, I I confidently left home to go and see my friends in the pub on about sixty minutes who were you know United fans looking forward to lording it over them at United's <laughs> defeat. Uh, and then I was kind of checking my Wi-Fi. Was checking Twitter on Wi on the tube Wi-Fi. On my way to the pub, and to realise that United had turned it around. I think it's it's funny, isn't it? It's I don't think it's a. F- in, uh, I saw some people saying it's a Mark Robbins moment. Like it's it is absolutely not a Mark <laughs> Robbins moment. Uh, things are still heading in only one direction. Uh, this is just going to slow down the the inevitable process. Um, but it you know maybe it will it will get Mourinho an extra few weeks in the job. Well, I mean, it looks like it's going to get him at least an extra
2: fortnight. Um, also, interesting going into this international break that Real Madrid and Bayern Munich are both considering changes. Um, With you know, two of uh, that's probably the three, the, the biggest
3: club in England, really, biggest club in Germany, biggest club in Spain, all facing real question marks over what they're going to do. It really underlines something which we talked about a bit last season, but it's even truer this season, and that is that the Champions League has never been so open. Like mm. City. If City don't get to the final this year, or they're, they're going to be kicking themselves because To ha- I mean, the only other big team who are not in a state of crisis are, I guess, Barcelona and Liverpool. Juve. And Juve, of course, yeah. Juve, yeah. Well, uh, I mean, you can well, argue they are in a state of crisis.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, their statement the other day was, was not good uh, on, on Cristiano Ronaldo. Um, I think Real Madrid and Barca are certainly in a down year. Barca, you can never rule out with Messi because he's just, you know, as people saw at
3: Wembley, he's he's that good. I think City could probably beat Barcelona over two legs. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I don't doubt they could. Um, the only thing they can't beat over two legs is Liverpool, who <laughs> they got in the yeah. quarters last year. But, but
2: so
1: City, Liverpool, um, Bar- uh, Barca are in the mix. Bayern did not look good. Um, could PSG do something this year? Do you think? I mean, yeah. Mbappe was very impressive this weekend. wasn't he scored four goals. I think. I think PSG have the quality
2: to do it. Um, I still think they would lose to the first proper team they played over two legs yeah uh, I don't I don't put them among the three or four favourites but like no one's going to be surprised if they get to the Champions League final yeah it's kind of a good story if they do it's quite interesting if they do Um, but no it's just I guess it's just a quirk that that Real Madrid are having these difficulties I mean the thing about Cristiano Ronaldo leaving like you lose a lot of goals and and he got a lot of goals in five nil wins over Leganes and Las Palmas and stuff. But he also, when it was nil nil against Alaves or whatever away, he would just pop up with two goals in the last twenty minutes just to get the result. And and that's kind of what they're missing right now. Bale
3: has it, got some injury problems; hasn't really stepped up. And, and also in the last few years, Ronaldo's record in Champions League knockout games was astonishingly good. Yeah, quarter yeah. and semis every single time away. From Number of times he's scored massive goals, away at Bayern, away at Juve, Huge. Uh, you know, all, so reliably. Um, just go go back through Wikipedia and look at everyone, all the Real Madrid knockout games from the, from their three consecutive titles. Well, they're in the mix
2: for a striker, and it's
3: all and it's always Ronaldo. And he's always
2: been a big game player. I don't see him? how I, mean, in back in the I can't League see how days. they can
3: get, completely. I don't see how they can get over the line in those games without him.
2: It's going to be interesting. Lopetegui really took. Terrible, terrible job on there. <laughs> like uh, go, Going in there after Zidane, after what Zidane's achieved, is almost impossible anyway. Then they take away the greatest goal scorer of a generation from you and say, good luck. You know, that's kind of what, what he's walked into. Niko Kovac at Bayern, um, it just, he just looked short of ideas. They, I mean, they lost it at home to Borussia Mönchengladbach 3-0 on Saturday night. They just... A sterile possession is what it was. They just couldn't create chances, basically. Lewandowski's born offside. Iron uh, Robin was dragged off at half-time and did absolutely nothing. Ribéry and Nabri came on and, and they were the more exciting players. Tiago made loads of passes but never kind of really
3: created a chance. He's not like quite an old team, doesn't yeah. it Ribéry, Robin, Lewandowski. Those are all players from like well, six, was, seven years there ago. There was a lot of uh, disquiet after the Tuesday
2: draw at home to Ajax in the Champions League so before that they'd, they'd lost yeah. one and drawn one in the league um, which hadn't gone down well so they winless in two Ajax came to town and basically played them off the park and this is a team full of kids isn't it The yeah. Ajax team but really talented kids like you know we talked about Frankie the Young and Van der Beek and all the other guys they've got there Kasper Dolberg this is a, like a talented young team and Bayern's team looks so old and crunk like Neuer's made loads of mistakes this year kind of in possession Hummels, Berteng, like, not i a really. fraud, yeah. definite <laughs> fraud for me. <laughs> Looks like Viva Vendetta guy, that's all I ever think about. He, he was really average Were Hamas Rodriguez and Renato Sanchez playing? Uh, Hamas started the game, played well, after the game, uh, according to Bild, after the game said um in the changing room about Kovac, this isn't Frankfurt. You know, His previous job he was at Eintracht Frankfurt, and he was like, this isn't Frankfurt, like that's not how we do it. So like Hammers not not particularly happy with it. There's actually situation. a cleverer,
3: funnier comment than I thought Hammers Rodriguez was capable yeah, of. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. I mean, also they kind of you wonder if Bill have kind of given him a bit too much credit there almost yeah. uh, with my experience of Hamez, but it, yeah, it's certainly interesting what Renato Sanchez came off the bench. He replaced uh it doesn't matter. Alaba, yeah. he replaced Alaba when Alaba was injured. Kimmich went across the right back. Um, Goretzka went to right back Kimmich left back and then um, Renato Sanchez a lot more energy he he had one run where he kind of beat three or four players and then his just last touch is just too heavy he's raw still the young guys who who certainly made them look better Nabry Renato Sanchez
1: are good but they are still raw they still don't quite have the end product that you'd want well it says a lot about that you know Nabri was let go by Arsenal Wenger could have kept him you know and he let, decided he'd let him go. He spent a few seasons in the Bundesliga, and Did now well he's one of yeah. Now he's one of the most exciting players in the Bayern team. And even though he could be a very, very good player, he's not the sort of player that you are like. Oh my god, this is an absolute standout star. So that shows that how desperately Bayern do need a sort of change. We've got know, some overhaul, yeah, they, really they've got some
2: injuries. I think it's a club that is heading for a little bit of a, a shake up at some point. I, I'd be very surprised if Kovac throughout the season and. and probably Lopetegui as well. We should get
3: rid of all the old players, buy some more young players and get Pochettino.
2: Yes, uh, I mean, I think there are a few clubs that are considering yeah. that at the moment. Um, I just wanted to have, uh, oh, we, I just wanted to have a quick discussion on Mourinho's future uh, with Miguel, so we'll ring him up shortly uh, and just get him because uh, he's been reporting the story all the way throughout, so it'd be nice to have some words from him.
0: Hello lads and listeners. Um, this was a slightly curious one, speaking at the moment because as it stands Mourinho is still in the job uh, that could change but with a certain amount of qualifications I don't think it will. Um, First of all there's always been so much commotion over this story in the mirror on Saturday uh, I, w- I would say that that's for, for all people easily criticised stories that has been put out there or the information put it there because someone highly connected wants it out there so I think it was a completely fair story to do and from what I gather it was you know 90 to 95% true in that key board members of United now want Mourinho gone I think as I quoted myself in my own sorry, as my own line on Saturday said some of them think it's past the point of no return Mourinho himself knows the situation and from what I gather um, they're, they're due to meet early this week in what is what will involve fairly serious discussions and Mourinho himself feared the worst um, I suppose the thing is Saturday's game was of such a nature that I think even if it had been a kind of a tepid 1-0 win like a really dull kind of more typical Mourinho win you might say that might have been more ground to change but the nature of it does feel like a it puts Woodward in a more difficult position, and you know Woodward is very concerned with optics, and optics don't look good no matter how bad that game was. For Seventy minutes. I think this is, I and mean, this is really the more relevant concern for United, that you know, late late goals often it's one of, it's one of two things: it's either a sign of a team's inherent character, or they just paper over the or temporarily paper over the cracks. And I think that's much more the case latter here. I think it was, uh, in fact, the game it reminded me of a lot was the 3-2 against City last season, which I get, which was similarly painted as a turning point for Mourinho, but really everything just got worse after that. Um, They've got a very difficult fixture that's coming up, which could be another reason why they don't make a decision just yet. But but also, I think I think just the tone has slightly changed. But uh, but in, say, in saying that, saying all that, the fervour is starting to die down a little since Saturday. So... It wouldn't completely stun me if they did make a move. International week would suit them. Um, I feel the fact I'm slightly contradicting myself a little bit illustrates how this has become such a complicated situation. Because the other side of it, even though so many at United know this is just a problematic situation, the the connection with the squad is broken, it doesn't look like it's going to get better. Another factor is they don't have an obvious replacement. Uh, Zidane is the one that's been put forward the most. I've heard Zidane would be Woodward's uh, preferred choice. But even that, there are all sorts of doubts. Z- Zidane basically left Real Madrid because he knew they weren't going to replace They are going to sell Ronaldo. They weren't going to replace him. And the only signings they were going to make were a goalkeeper and Ar- Um, So he knew that was a squad need of renovation. Given that, I'm not sure why he would, you know... <laughs> potentially negatively affect the status he's built up as a manager for what is a much bigger job at Manchester United. And there's there's also the other issue that was Zidane himself, a lot of people who know him aren't really that sure whether he's all that concerned of being a manager, which is why he would only really go into jobs where everything is as he wants it. Now, we're, I'm doing a story today about how he might take the United job if he was given full control of transfers, uh, which I'm not sure is something United would give him. But again, that just points to how you know he he's not he's not necessarily a shoe in for the job, uh, but yeah it's it's usually complicated. situation. I think Mourinho will just hang on this week. I'd say that fifty-two to forty-eight maybe in favour, uh, <laughs> a point is a percentage. Uh, but then you you've seen the fixtures coming up. I can't see him being there by December maybe. Um, from what I've got, another little detail here, I've heard that um, if United you know, were to sack him, Carrick would be the, sta- the temporary replacement and he would be a very, very popular uh, decision among the players. But it's going to be an interesting few weeks. It's almost a pity it's an international week in that way because I think for it's been a quite a slow start to the season, story-wise. I mean, even earlier on, the Mourinho story bubbled up. And then he got he got a few good results in a row, and it kind of went away. Only to come back with force in the last two weeks. You yeah, know that's happening. We go into the international week, we have a disruption. Now the the argument is the international week is a perfect time to make a change, but the Newcastle result has made it uh, an imperfect game after which to make a change. So um, we'll see.
2: Thank you, Miguel. And uh, just before we go, I just want to do a couple of minutes of. England chat because it is international week and we do oh need yes. to uh, refer to Gareth's boys as the nation's hope and hope is the operative word with a squad that's got an interesting look to it Jack it's a bit young you're going to be um, you're, go- you're going away to Spain yeah, so
3: England are playing Rijeka on Friday night I think and then in Seville on Monday night So uh, a bad double header for you is it no so I'm going to both those games as Miguel um which I'm really looking forward to. And what I'm really looking forward to as well is this kind of new look England squad. Like there's, There's been quite a f- since the World Cup, there's been a few, ret- obviously Vardy and Cahill have stepped aside for international football. I think Dele Alli and Lingard are injured at the moment. Uh, delph has been dropped. He's not playing enough. Young's been dropped. Loftus-Cheek's out. So, there's, and in this squad, there's a lot of new players to get excited about. There's Chalibur who I think Chalaber who's uncapped, Winks, who's got one or two caps. The thing about
2: Chalibur is we, we thought, we, we knew Southgate loved him. Yeah. He played, he's like the Every one. level. He played o- level. over 100 youth games for
3: England, which is kind of what Southgate wants to be happening yeah. from now on. Um, Jaden Sancho. Jaden Sancho uncapped, Mason Mounts uncapped, James Madison's uncapped um so it's a really really exciting group um i'm really lewis dunks now in as backup uh i'm really looking forward to seeing how it works i imagine that i guess we'll have to play a three-man midfield in croatia of henderson henderson winks and madison at a guess i can't see them starting mount in there and I, I imagine sancho will be an option off the bench for the um uh in the sort of st- sterling role the interesting thing about sancho is that i I heard the other day that some people at Bristol Dortmund think it's actually come too soon. Because it's not like, like Sancho's done well at Dortmund, but he's it's not like top, he's a regular. He's got most assists in Europe
2: of the top five not, f- leagues.
3: Yeah, but he's, I think a lot of it's been kind of off the bench. Like he's not oh. like playing every minute. And they they think it's a bit early because he's only 18. But it's, I mean, it's, it's exciting to see him thrown in. It's also, what I like about it is, Sancho took a very bold decision where yeah. last summer when City offered him more than £30,000 a week, the biggest ever contract offer to a 17-year-old and he said, no, I want to go and play football, went to Dortmund, and a year on, he's in the team and playing for England. And I wonder whether people like Phil Foden and the next generation will look at that and think, well, actually, I'd be better off away from the kind of very uh, like attractive, well-furnished City Football Academy, going to go and try and play football somewhere else. Yeah, I think it's going to be an, an increasing thing. I, I, I'm looking forward
2: to seeing Sancho because apart from uh, this weekend in, in Munich, I haven't had to, uh, the opportunity to watch much Bundesliga this year, not Dortmund, I saw Dortmund in the uh, Champions League, but not in the Bundesliga. So I'd like to see Sancho in England. I think it's going to be interesting. Mason Mount uh, is one. I remember Southgate mentioning him at the World Cup as a guy that he wanted to get in the picture. So he's clearly high-rated. Interesting to see how that has an impact on on young Chelsea players as well. Because uh, it does. I was watching Sunday Supplement, which Jonathan Liu was on, on Sky Sports yesterday. And um, Johnny's point was that this tells us maybe perhaps what Southgate thinks about the Nations League, which is interesting because there's a legit chance we could get relegated from the mm. Nations League. But sorry, I, I I wasn't watching some supplement. What did Johnny say in this? He he said it, it, he he thinks that this squad tells us a little bit about what Southgate thinks about the um the Nations League in terms of as a competition like you know, it would be nice to he stay doesn't in want the win it. It'd be,
3: no, it'd be nice to stay in the top flight, but he's more yeah. considering development. It's he's funny you like, should say that because I was—I actually asked Southgate exactly this after the England game against Switzerland, Switzerland, oh, Switzerland. in Leicester last international break. Like, so I forgot, I think my question was something like, how motivated are you by the prospect of staying in the top, mm-hmm. in the top tier of the Nations League? And he basically said, not very, like, I have other priorities. That sounds like a piece and that means, this week. Yeah, I think I, uh, particularly given that I will miss the Southgate press conference in Riaka on Thursday afternoon, because I'll be uh, mid-air. Do the piece. Uh, and that means that we have to be prepared for the possibility of not, you know, I'm sure we'll lose uh in spain and might well lose in croatia which would meaning we get relegated in the second to the nation's league for its next iteration but if we're going to be bringing through young players it's probably all for the best in the long term yeah that, he's looking towards euros and world cups i think rather than the nation's league which is nice tournament
2: nice idea but still not really what he's going to be judged on i guess um and that's why he's doing it uh yeah i guess that's Probably about it for today, uh, Tom. Thank you for coming on for your for your debut. Thank, thank your, you for your thoughts, um, Jack. As ever, thank you for coming in. Have a wonderful trip to Croatia and Spain. I hope it's sunny still. Um, Me too. Uh, Seville should be in October. Should be really nice still. And um, we've got loads of good stuff coming on the website this week. Um, we've got an interview with Real Betis coach. No, no, is it Kike Setien? We were doing Kike Setien. Yeah, it was. because we did Marcelino the other week. Kike Setien, uh, who's a really interesting guy. We've got uh, loads more stuff coming uh, on the Nations League. I've got Wales-Spain piece by Tom Williams, which has just dropped as I walked into the room, uh, as well as a load of other stuff. So as ever, stay tuned. Uh, make sure you're following us on Twitter, Instagram, uh, Facebook, all of the relevant things. Uh, just not following us to our houses. Until next week, thank you for joining us. Goodbye.